On today's episode of The Solar Podcast, Dave is speaking with Joel Gamerin, Vice President and General Manager of Energy Services at Arcadia, a community solar company. Join us as they break down exactly how community solar works, the economic benefits, and how it's expanding renewable energy access beyond just rooftop panels. Let's get started on The Solar Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson. Thrilled to be joined today with Joel Gamarin, who is actually a community solar expert. We've had a lot of different experts come on the podcast, but community solar is something that people talk a lot about. I, I don't think it's really that confusing, but there are sort of there are a lot of different parts and, and pieces to it. And I, I'd love to dive into it in a way that that uh, other podcasts haven't really talked about it. So, um, Joel, I'm sure there's lots of things that we could. Uh, uh, help us understand it's certainly about your bio or about your bio and where you come from, uh, and, and ultimately, how did you end up landing in the community solar space? Uh, but most importantly, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, uh, Dave, thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you're right, uh, community solar uh, maybe uh, isn't quite as well known um, when it comes to the solar energy market, but that is rapidly changing and. <laughs> excited to uh, you know help educate your audience today. Yeah, so maybe just give us a little bit of a rundown. So pre, uh, I mean, what's your first sort of like foray into renewable energy and then how did you transition into community solar? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started my career uh, consulting and a lot of my clients were oil and gas companies. So that's kind of uh, how I got into the industry, um, got, got the energy background. And uh, you know, after doing that for about six years, um, really wanted to switch teams, so to speak, um, and, and got into uh, consumer energy efficiency, which was a, a very software-oriented um, business model where we were enabling customers to take actions that would reduce their home energy bills um, through a technology platform. And um, from there, I transitioned into a similar consumer tech company, but focused on rooftop solar, right? Which is what most people think of when they air solar panels, right? You think of panels on your roof. Well, working in that business for a few years, um, sort of had this realization with leadership of the company that um, what we were doing was great. We were, you know, generating interest in solar and helping expand the market. But, you know, for every 10 customers who we had excited, wanting to move forward, you know, had the wherewithal to do it, there would always be a reason they couldn't move forward for about nine out of 10 customers, right? Whether it was they would need a new roof before they could move forward, they didn't have the credit score, um, right? Their, their roof faced the wrong direction, right? You, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put solar on your roof if, if you have a northern facing slope, you're just not going to get enough sun exposure. And um, so we started thinking about how can we solve this problem, right? We have people that want to do the right thing, that want to move forward. And um, around 2016, I joined Arcadia to start our community solar business. And community solar really kind of solves that problem that I had discovered at a previous company, which is how do I get solar if I can't put the panels on my roof? And so that's the idea behind community solar. It's let's open up access to renewable energy to everyone. It doesn't matter, you know, what kind of home you live in, if you're a renter, if you have a great credit score, it is a way to build solar farms uh, separate from your property um, that can serve many people in the utility territory and enable, you know, a, a community, right, of customers to share in the benefits of that um, solar array. So that, that's kind of uh, how, I, how I got into the market. Um, and, and, you know, I've been, uh, with Arcadia now for about seven years building out this business. That's great. Maybe a little bit more expanding on exactly what community solar is. So obviously you have yep. community solar, which is you have a large solar plant somewhere, and then you have, are they actual asset owners or are they contracts for service for the, for, for the, the solar or for the electricity that the panels produce. Maybe you can kind of go into that a little yeah. bit. And I know it takes a couple of different shapes and forms, but maybe you can kind of help expand yeah. on that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the right idea. So you have a uh, solar project that will be much larger than a typical, you know, homeowner solar project, right? So think, you know, large enough to support 500 to 1,000 homes, right? So it could be um, mounted on, uh, you know, the 
on a ground site, um, could be on a large warehouse rooftop, shopping mall rooftop, could be on a, a capped landfill, right? There are a variety of different um, types of sites that these systems can be built. Um, and what happens is essentially there is a you know, group of owner operators yes. of the solar farm um, who have invested in the solar farm and they now need to monetize the electricity that's being generated. So the energy is going to flow into the grid, um, right? Flow into the utility system. And then from there, it effectively gets metered onto the individual electric bills of customers throughout the utility territory. And that is the role that Arcadia plays. We are going out and marketing these projects, sourcing customers that are interested in supporting solar um, without having an installation on their roof. Can be residents, businesses, homeowners, renters, and so forth. And um, you, the mechanics, you can really think of it the same way as rooftop solar, right? When you have panels on your roof, you're not necessarily, you know, minute by minute using all of the energy that's produced, right? A lot of it's going into the grid, but you're still getting credit for that on your bill. And community solar works the exact same way. We are able to financially, right, meter credit for the solar energy that's being produced onto the utility bills of our customers. They in turn purchase the energy at a discount. Those payments flow back to the owner operator and that's how they earn their return. And so that, that's really the way the, the market works. So just it, it, for every community solar project, you have a, a developer, someone that's building a project. You have to have investors. And typically the investor side, it's a it's one of those complex structures we've talked a lot about on this podcast where you've got tax equity investors. Usually you've got sponsor equity investors. Sometimes you have debt. That's part of that sponsor equity. Uh, what's Arcadia's role in that? Are you guys only working on the marketing and the sourcing of customers or do you play a role in the development and the origination of the actual projects as well? Yeah, great question. So we do um, a lot of advisory um, to the developer and owner operators that we work with around what do the different markets look like in terms of, you know, demand, uh, right, for community solar? Um, what are the applicable policies in place? Um, and certainly, you know, we provide a lot of support in undergoing financial mm -hmm. diligence, right, that you have a reliable partner that will be able to subscribe and manage the asset over time. So that's the role we play really on the development side. We are not ourselves a developer um, or an investor in the projects. Um, similarly, on the demand side, um, right, the end use customers who will ultimately be signing up uh, to save on their power bills, we are aggregating, marketing, educating those customers um, and providing them with an experience over time. So you can kind of think of us as a market maker in some ways. We like to think of the supply side as uh, right, the, the solar capacity and the demand side as the end users whose bills we're going to ultimately um, save money. Yeah. So let's talk about that then. So you've got obviously the project itself, you're building solar somewhere, again, rooftop could be a large ground mount. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to have someone that's purchasing that electricity. And how is it different where instead of just getting the utility company to, to purchase that as a generation hey. station, you're actually going to the end consumer. What, what are the market economics of that? And is it different yeah. one place to the next or is it typically the same everywhere? Yeah. Yeah. So you're hitting on one of the key complexities of this market, right? Is that there's not really one market. There's actually, you know, 15 different markets because we're in 15 different states. Um, and, and hopefully someday that will be 50 different markets, right? And, you know, in the US energy policy, as I'm sure your audiences are familiar, it's, it's run at the state level, right? Um, and so each state's going to operate a little differently. There can even be some variance by utility. Um, we have certainly uh, worked very hard to standardize um, from both the developer and the, the end use customer's experience so that you're getting a lot of consistency, um, even across states. Um, but there are important nuances there. And I think when you're thinking about the economics, right, because I think that gets to the heart of your question, it is kind of important to think about, well, what are the origins of this market? Like, Why does community solar exist, right? And ultimately, it really is to level the playing field and open access to customers who couldn't take advantage of a net metering program in their state, right? Um, you have net metering policy, which, you know, I don't get a, forget the exact count, but something like 45 states, right, have net metering that basically says, if you invest in solar and, you know, whether you own that yourself or it's a third party, if that's on your roof, you're getting credit for the retail rent of energy for everything that you produce. And there's just no way without community solar for 
renters, um, you know, customers without the right credit score and so forth to take advantage of that policy. And so community solar, again, it, it's really about opening access, leveling the playing field and enabling everyone to participate. And so what that translates to from a financial perspective is that community solar projects are getting essentially the full retail rate um, in terms of how their energy is valued versus if you just you know, strike up a PPA agreement with a utility, you're really getting a wholesale rate, right? And so um, when you start thinking about it with that lens, that this is really net metering. It's, it just so happens that the project isn't you know, physically connected to the customer. You start to see why the economics make sense and why the programs are designed that way. And there, are, of course, are variations, right? Certain states have, um, you know, more complicated tariffs um, around exactly how the, the energy will be valued, but they're generally all built with that, um, you know, framework around let's level the playing field so that, it, you know, the, the sort of lucky people who happen to have the right, you know, roof um, to put solar panels on their roof they're not somehow advantaged over, you know, everyone else in the service territory. Yeah. So for a typical project, what usually comes first, the customer base or the project? So what do, do you go and yeah. find the customers and then build a project or do you build a project and then go find the customers? Yeah. Typically the project will come first. And I would say the reason for that is if you think about the development life cycle for these projects, right, it can be anywhere from one to three years in the making, right? When you're, you know, starting to find your sites, working through the permitting process, interconnection, um, construction, and so forth. And so um, there is investment that is happening um, even before customers have been signed up. That's really the developer's role in the process um, is placing those bets and starting to mature their projects. We are brought in before the project is actually built and we do start lining up customers so that once it turns on, it is full. Um, so, you know, that means we're typically coming in anywhere from you know, six months to maybe out to about 18 months um, before the project is expecting to turn on. And we'll start bringing on customers and of course set expectations of, you know, you're supporting a brand new solar project, um, right? You get to kind of be involved along the journey. Um, and once it turns on and starts operating, that's when you're gonna actually see the savings hit your belt. Are, are there any examples of community solar where it's more like a co-op where the actual end users are the owners of the asset as well? Or they're, they're investing in a community solar as part of a community and then they're also the beneficiaries of the electricity? Or does that ever happen? I, I would say you have seen select examples of that. Um, I, I'm familiar with some projects that work that way in Colorado, a handful of projects in Vermont. But I think you're talking about, you know, the, um, the sort of special snowflakes um, and, and that's not really how the market is scaling. Um, again, this is geared towards um, opening clean energy to the masses um, and that type of specialized structure where you're leveraging, you know, tax capacity of individuals. Um, I, I would say that's definitely not the norm and, and not how um, the market is scaling and really executing against, um, you know, the goals of, of the policies that are put into place. I, th I think most of us that are working in this industry are fairly impact driven. And I think community solar plays a, a, a real critical role in, in the decarbonization of our, of our uh, electrical system. But can you go into a little bit about the economics for the end user? Um, what, what, what are the typical economics that a, a person that would sign up for community solar? And then also, what's the commitment that one of those end users might have to make? Yeah. So that's going to certainly vary depending on the customer type, right? Um, and so we have, you know, small business customers, larger um, corporations, individual uh, residential customers. And interestingly, um, there is a, a strong policy focus on incorporating opportunities for low-income customers to, to participate because, you know, there are a lot of um, low-income customers who have historically been, you know, basically blocked out of um, the rooftop solar opportunities, right? And so you'll see, you know, varying terms across those different segments. I would say the great thing about community solar is that unlike rooftop solar, if you have any kind of issue with a customer, they move, they stop paying, right? Um, you're not tied to that customer, right? They can leave and you can replace them. And so it's, it's really fungible, which actually enables the terms to be more consumer friendly, especially when you're thinking about residential customers. And so um, we have largely standardized our sort of terms across all the different markets we operate in. The 
economics will vary a little bit market to market depending on um, you know the underlying economics of solar in that state, right? But um, you know a typical uh, offer for a residential customer would be very flexible terms, right? You're signing up. If you want to exit, notify us. There's no penalties, no fees. You're going to pay for the value that you receive, um, right? It might take the utility a few billing cycles to implement your request to cancel, but if you want to leave, that's okay. We've got others who would gladly, you know, come in and, and take your place. Um, and on top of that, it's a guaranteed savings product, right? So the way community solar works, if we want to get into the weeds of the mechanics, right? Um, again, similar to net metering, but it is purely financial. It's not physical. So the solar farm is going to generate energy. You are going to be allocated onto your bill a financial value that represents the value of that energy. And that's going to be essentially a negative line item on your bill. So you might see, okay, I owe the utility $120, but I have this new negative $100 line item. So now I only owe the utility 20 And so the way we provide a guaranteed savings is by committing that whatever that value of solar energy that you received on your bill, that negative $100, we're going to charge you a percentage applied to that value. So we might charge you $95 for the credit you received or $90 for the credit you received. So that's how the guaranteed savings product works. So no matter what happens to utility rates, if you go out and explore the retail energy market, right? If you, you know, increase your load by adding a, an electric vehicle, your percentage discount that you're getting for the value of credits is going to remain the same over time. And so that's how the discount product works. I would say for commercial customers, you know, who may be uh, subscribing to a large percentage of the project, right? And so um, you know, bring greater risk uh, to the asset owner from any kind of disruption in, in um, subscription levels, there will typically be more stringent terms around cancellation periods, right? Um, early termination fees and, and credit requirements and so forth. But um, that really doesn't apply to individuals who want to participate. I'd say that, well, let's talk a little bit about that, the, the potential flexibility of community solar projects for the end user or the homeowner. One of the problems with solar is, is that you have to sort of guess how much electricity am I going to use for the next 20 years at some level, right? I mean, of course, you can expand the solar if it's installed on your roof. Uh, but it, for the most part, it's a use it or lose it proposition. If your system overproduces and you don't use that energy, you're not actually getting much economic value. I mean, you're certainly producing electricity, but not much economic value. For the consumer that's part of a community solar project, let's just say that there's a certain load profile that that homeowner has, and then they add two electric vehicles and their kids grow up and these other sorts of things. What, what sort of expansion opportunities do they have? Are they limited to a certain percentage of that one project or is it pretty, uh, is it, is it pretty flexible for that end consumer? Yeah, there, there's a lot of flexibility. And I would say this is one of the things where, you know, a company like Arcadia plays an important role, right? Because um, that is our function on, on these projects, right? Is to maintain subscription levels over time, um, provide good customer service, right? Incorporate, um, you know, any sort of new um, desires or, or demands of customers. And um, there, in general, in community solar, there is a lot of opportunity to adjust sizing, right? Up or down. You, you know, you add an EV, um, your load goes up, you can now um, take more of the solar energy and, and increase your savings. You know, your kids move out of the house, maybe you need to downsize, right? Um, so I, I think uh, that is an opportunity pretty much across the board in the market. I would say one of the unique things that we at Arcadia have brought to the table is um, an ability to actually integrate with the customer's utility data so that we actually see that happening. We don't even need the customer to take action. We've got, you know, algorithms built in that say, hey, you're using more, right? We can increase your size um, so that you actually can kind of optimize your savings or, you know, it looks like, oh, your your shape has changed um, and you don't need as much anymore. Let's bring that down so you're not paying for credits you don't need, right? So that's a really important role um, that we play uh, in terms of ensuring a good experience, both for the asset owners and for the uh, the subscribers. And with community solar, are subscribers usually associated with just a single project or are they actually beneficiaries across multiple projects or does that differ yeah. from time to time? Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're talking about residential customers, um, it's, it's a one-to-one -one ratio typically, right? Um, there, there wouldn't really be any, 
any need um, to tap into multiple solar farms. They can get you know their slice of the project, and there's more than enough um, you know, there to cover their needs. When you're talking about commercial customers, there are cases um, that we've managed, and I'm sure others have as well, where you know a commercial customer is actually too large. Um, to receive all of the uh, the benefits um, that it could use from one solar farm, and so we'll actually aggregate up you know slices of multiple solar farms um, and serve that that commercial customer to try to um, you know cover more of their load. And and the rules there vary by state, right? That's that particular um, model, right? Of subscribing to multiple farms isn't allowed in every state, but it is in others, and so. Again, you're kind of working with the customer um, and trying to yeah. optimize for their needs across uh, the solar farms. Yeah. So you mentioned you're obviously trying to grow as everyone is in this industry. And we want to see, again, more electrification, more decarbonization of the of, of the grid. Uh, but in terms of, you know, we, we hear 3 to 4% uh, penetration on the homeowner side for residential solar. What's the slice of the pie that community solar is currently taking for the for the whole pie in terms of yeah. how big is community solar on the residential side, but also on the commercial, maybe yeah. even utility side? Yeah, we're look, we're we're in still in early days um, of, of this market, right? So um, I would say you have probably roughly six hundred thousand residential customers participating in community solar across the fifteen states that has or fourteen states rather that that have community solar markets operating today. So that's, that's a pretty small penetration rate. I think you're, you know, you're probably in the, the one to 3% um, penetration rate. Um, I think the, there is massive opportunity to scale that up. I think all of the challenges that you have with rooftop solar, right. That we briefly chatted about um, already, you don't have any of those challenges with community solar. Really your limit is, how, how much capacity can we build in this market, right? And so, um, I you know, I actually look to the parallel of the retail energy market where you see, you know, in the 20 to 30% penetration rates um, in most states, I actually think community solar should be able to beat um, beat that because you have, um, in, in my view, a much more attractive consumer product, right? You have savings and you have supporting renewables. Uh, and so if we can reach, you know, 20 to 30% of the market, um, you know, that, that are willing to take an action around their energy, we should be able to far exceed that, uh, in community solar where, um, you know, you're also doing good for the world. Yeah. So solar in the United States has been criticized for being extremely expensive on the residential side compared to a lot of our, like, uh, international competitors or our, uh, you know, other countries, Australia is oftentimes sure. noted as doing solar for you know, a buck a watt where California is yeah. paying four bucks a watt on average. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the community solar side of things, um, how, how, how's the cost structure either better or worse than like typical <laughs> residential solar? And, and in terms of the cost and economics benefits over time, what are you expecting to see with community solar in terms of that cost curve and, and it coming down for consumers? Yeah. So yeah. great question. So, um, you have a far better cost structure than you do when you're thinking about individual rooftop solar installations. So community solar, in a lot of ways, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds, right? You're installing at a larger scale. So you get some economies of scale there, um, often ground mounted, right? Which is uh, a more economical way to install. Um, but then you have the benefits flowing to um, individuals, right? So you, you kind of have the best of both worlds there. Um, I would say... Uh, community solar is operating at the distribution level, right? So we're talking typically up to about five megawatt uh, per solar projects. So we're not talking utility scale economics, you know, so I don't necessarily see us getting down to that, that buck a watt um, anytime soon, but I think you can certainly be, um, you know, far, far more efficient than an individual um, residential installation. And I think there are, you know, some green shoots that will help us um, continue pushing costs down and, and or finding creative ways to um, to cover that cost, right? A great example is in the Inflation Reduction Act, you have um, allowance to consider interconnection costs in, in part of the cost basis for the project, right? Which I think is a really smart incentive program. Um, interconnection is is one of the number one bottlenecks in the market today, right? Holding us back from deploying more renewables. So um, I think smart policy can definitely help. Um, you know, soft costs coming down will also help as you know, this market grows and, and awareness increases. Um, 
but I think we're already starting from a much more efficient model than you know putting a power plant on everyone's house. Yeah, we're we're seeing extremely disparate pricing. So I said California's average pricing, but one homeowner uh, to the next homeowner is going to pay significantly different, and a lot of that that has to do with again some some probably. Um, appropriate uh, criticism around the acquisition costs of solar, Mm -hmm. um, certainly on the commission side of things for the residential solar space. Um, What's the typical cost per acquiring a customer on the community side? And, um, you know, obviously it's not a 20-year customer, but how do you guys sort of like think about that as an industry and maybe uh, for Arcadia specifically? Yeah, so there's a high degree of variation there in community solar as well. And that largely comes down to what are the sort of rules and requirements um, in each applicable market, right? And I think there's trade-offs there, right? Because a lot of the the rules and requirements that make customer acquisition more difficult and therefore more expensive are intentional, right? They have certain policy motives behind them, right? So I'll I'll give you a specific example. Um, In the state of New Jersey, there was an RFP process to select um, the first set of, of pilot projects, right? They got to participate in community solar. And, and as part of that RFP, RFP meaning re- request for proposal. Yes, so, uh, exactly. Our, our industry is, is laden with uh, acronyms. So. That's right. Yeah, it's <laughs> alphabet soup here. Um, but yeah. that's right. A, a competitive uh, solicitation, right? And, and there were, were actually awards, right? Higher points um, in the solicitation given to projects that made certain types of commitments. So, for example, um, subscribing the project only within um, a specific municipality where it's being built um, or serving only certain types of, you know, disadvantaged segments of the community, right? And so all those things I think are, again, intentional, you know, noble policy goals, but restricts the audience um, that you can sell to and, and right, make it more expensive. Um, and so I would say there is a wide range um, when it comes to to acquisition costs, it's going to be far less than rooftop solar because, again, you have a much larger audience that you can reach. But you know, it could be anywhere from three hundred to about a thousand dollars per customer on the customer acquisition side. And what's the typical life cycle or length of time that a community solar project is able to maintain and keep a customer? Yeah, so I think you know, moving is the number one reason a customer leaves the project because again, it's a a very consumer friendly product, um, guaranteed savings model. You're you're doing the right thing. You're supporting solar in your community. So we don't see a lot of dissatisfaction. It's mostly moving, right? If you leave the, the utility territory, or even if you you know uh, move to a new address, you're going to have to go through setting up um, your accounts again and, and documents and paperwork and all that good stuff. So that's the number one reason. Um, I would say, you know, uh, if you average out what a customer lifespan will be based on, you know, the rates we see, it's probably in the five to six year range. Um, so for a typical customer life, which largely tracks, you know, if you think about average, um, mover rates, um, in the U S so it's not surprising to kind of see that correlation. Yeah. I think some recent policy changes, particularly relating to the inflation reduction act, um, are, are bode very well for community solar for two reasons. First one, obviously, is is that uh, it sort of reinvigorated investors to sort of put their money behind these renewable products because of the the the, the great incentives that that exist there. But furthermore, there's also these incentives that you alluded to at the beginning of the call, where mm-hmm. low income communities are able to sort of like get some additional benefits. How does community solar sort of like now reposition itself, or are you targeting now new areas? that can, you know, sort of like help serve those under, um, maybe first of all, talk about what those policies are. And, sure. and second of all, how community solar is trying to take advantage of those to, to pass those benefits on to the end consumer, the subscribers in those low-income areas. Yeah, a- absolutely. So exciting topic. Um, I think community solar is very well positioned uh, to benefit from several of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, right? So there's, I would say, an overarching goal um, within some sections of the IRA around um, providing benefits through clean energy infrastructure to low-income or underserved communities. And again, community solar already at the state level is doing a lot of that, right? We have state policies around serving um, low-income or, or disadvantaged communities already in community solar. The IRA kind of um, really further invigorates um, those types of policies. And specifically, um, I'll talk about two pieces. So one, you have 
uh, a provision called the Low Income Economic Benefits Matter. Um, I don't have an acronym for that one yet. Maybe we need one. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, what that does is basically says, if you can show that you're providing 50% of the financial benefits that a project is generating, financial benefits des is designed to mean essentially the customer utility bills on being offset or the, the savings being provided to customers. You can show that you're providing 50% of those benefits to low-income households. You can get a 20% adder um, on your solar ITC. And so that's a huge win for um, the industry. Uh, but ultimately what it what it's doing is ensuring that community solar projects that could theoretically serve any mix of customer base right across commercial, um, residential and so forth, they're uh, specifically targeting uh, low income customers um, and ensuring that that is the, the customer base that is benefiting from the from these infrastructure investments. So that's really exciting. Um, now there is sort of something a little unusual about that tax credit, which is that there is a, a fixed uh, sort of cap on how much credit um, will be awarded in any given year. So it's a 1.8 gigawatt program of which there's a carve out of about 700 megawatts a year that's really tailored around the, the model that Community Solar performs. And so what that means is that there's an application process um, to right, sort of receive your, your award um, for that tax credit. And so we are seeing, you know, almost everyone in the market, uh, you know, all the developers we work with, certainly we, we work with about 60 community solar developers. They're all sort of positioning and, and uh, planning to apply for this credit. And um, we're expecting awards for the first year to be announced by the end of this year. Right, and then see sort of how mm -hmm. the market um, develops and matures uh, from there. But there is certainly a lot of interest, um, and I think the um, policy that is already in place in many states has created the comfort right among investor community um, and, and in in terms of companies like Arcadia ability to fulfill right and execute against the goal of serving low income customers. So that is a really exciting piece, and I think we're going to see um, not only growth in the market but also um, right, a, a sort of diverting of where the savings are flowing from, you know, maybe, uh, you know, mass market customer type to more low income customers, um, which is a good thing. Um, and then I think the second, the second piece of the IRA that's exciting for this market is the greenhouse gas reduction funds. Um, uh, I, I think it's been um, sort of rebranded as solar for all um, being administered by the EPA. And um, that program uh, entails around a $7 billion fund that individual states can actually apply for a grant to create new energy programs um, that serve low-income customers with renewables. And so we're expecting, um, you know, a number of states will look to the community solar model as a way to, um, you know, launch these types of programs and bring, bring some federal investment dollars into their state um, through that program. So that's something where the application period is open right now. We're, we're here in end of September, 2023. Um, I think applications are due in October. Um, and you know, it'll, it'll be really fascinating to see what new state programs come out of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so solar adoption being 600,000 ish on the resi side for, for community solar. Uh, there's a lot of tailwinds on the federal side, pushing these sorts of programs and their success. Um, what are the what are the real sort of headwinds or obstacles that community solar faces in terms of why we're not seeing faster adoption and why we're not seeing more projects being built and why we're not seeing more subscribers? Yeah, uh, that, that's literally the question that I wake up every morning, right, uh, <laughs> trying to tackle. Um, and I, I think there's there's a couple answers. So um, number one, community <laughs> solar really is a policy enabled market, just like you need net metering policy. Um, for rooftop solar to proliferate, you need a similar uh, policy to enable customers um, to receive the benefits without having the installation on your on their roof. And so that's a big part of how you grow the community solar market is, um, right? We have, like I said, 14 states right now. Um, we have legislation passed uh, last year in California to open up a community solar program. So that will be a 15th state. Um, and uh, right, we have sort of implementation process underway in California, but more states, um, you know, passing laws to enable 
right, um, citizens to participate in these types of projects um, and expanding existing states, right? Some states have annual caps um, or in sort of a pilot phase and need to expand into a permanent program, right? And, and we've seen a lot of success um, in executing against uh, those sort of policy needs, um, but it takes time, right? So that, that's one that's one uh, sort of way to continue growing the market. And then on the other side, I would say is there are uh, again, you know, physical constraints on the system that we need to kind of power through as as an industry, and and that's really around interconnection, right? And some of that I think is, you know, something as simple as staffing, right? Having you know enough budget that the utilities can review these applications and sure. um, right and and actually enable projects to move forward. Um, and in other areas, there is, you know, more infrastructure investment needed to support um, distributed generation. So I think those are those are kind of the two key areas. I'll tell you what is not um, an impediment. What is not an impediment is having the available demand, right? Customers that want to participate in these programs. Um, like I said, we are only scratching the surface with, you know, that one to three percent um, participation rate. I think we could get to, you know, 20 to 30 percent plus very easily if we have the, the supply to support it. What's the typical customer acquisition strategy and, and how often are you able to work through the utilities to actually help source these customers? Or are you ever able to work through the utilities in, to, to sort of like convert existing utility customers over mm -hmm. to community solar and utility customers? Yeah, so we're not working with the utilities on that. The utilities are very involved in the program. So I think one, one of the ways community solar, I think is, it, in some ways more utility friendly than rooftop solar is right. The, the, um, customer's participation is still flowing through the utility, right? We're not actually reduce taking their load off of the grid, right? The utility is an active participant. Um, but they're not an active participant in terms of marketing the program, right? It is private investment that's coming into these markets, um, which again is a good thing, right? We're generating, you know, local jobs, local economic development. Um, and, uh, and, um, just like rooftop solar companies, right? Or any, um, right? Like think of Netflix or, or what have you, right? Um, we are offering a competing product um, in a lot of ways. And so there can be um, somewhat of a friction there from a customer experience standpoint, um, or, or, or rather in terms of how the utilities view their relationship with customers, right? Um, so the way we get, you know, we have a variety of different channels that we use. Um, uh, a lot of, you know, digital marketing, uh, right. Uh, social media, uh, referrals, partnerships, right. We have partnerships with various, um, organizations that want to promote sustainability, right. Into their networks of customers. Um, and we do mail, right. Um, believe it or not, right. A, a little old fashioned, but, um, it is effective. Um, and even direct sales, right. So events, um, or canvassing the community, um, knocking on doors, spreading the word, that this is a new program available in the service territory. Um, so wide variety of different channels and, um, you know, they're all um, sort of effective for, for reaching different segments of the population. Yeah. So that $300 to $1,000 you kind of mentioned, really what it is, is it's just an awareness campaign. It's trying to make sure that people are aware that community solar is available and that for those that participate, there should be a, they should be able to recognize guaranteed discounts on their uh, electricity costs is, is kind of the idea. That's exactly right. And then, of course, you know, there's a process the customer has to go through to, to actually sign up and, um, you know, get all the documents in place and all that. But we make that pretty simple through our, our online portal. Yeah. So a close cousin to the community solar that we've kind of talked about would be sort of like off-grid microgrids um, or off-the-utility microgrids. Uh, what, if any, role do you see these microgrids playing in the decarbonization of our overall sort of like uh, electric, uh, electric, electricity landscape in the future? And does Arcadia ever want to play in that space? It's not that far afield from what you're already doing, right? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And um, so I, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a microgrid expert, but I think where uh, there are some interesting parallels. So a couple of thoughts. Um, so one... I think one thing a microgrid can do is it can help insulate, um, you know, sort of critical uh, infrastructure from outages or, or service reliability issues, right? And so you could certainly imagine a um, microgrid that has, say, you know, fuel cell or, or battery backup systems that are charged by a solar array, um, right? And then um, can be relied on, 
right? Either from a reliability standpoint or to help, you know, shave peak load and, and reduce costs, right? Um, I would say that is more of a physical infrastructure um, play than, than really um, tied to community solar in any way. But um, one of the interesting things that we're seeing, and this is definitely going to come up in California, is uh, depending on the rate design that community solar projects are being developed into, there's often, um, or in some cases even requirements, to incorporate storage, right? So a solar plus storage installation. And mm -hmm. um, what that essentially allows the owner operator to do is try to maximize the value that their energy is going to be worth that they're producing um, and align it with the needs of the grid, right? So I, I talked earlier about some of these interconnection issues. You know, there's a concept of non-wires alternatives, right, in the utility space. And the idea there is if you can reduce transmission congestion, if you can, um, you know, help to uh, pull energy off the grid when demand is low and inject solar energy onto the grid when demand is high, you can actually um, sort of play a, a positive role from um, a uh, you know, distribution system perspective. And so that is something that we're seeing that I think we'll continue to see is um, solar and storage being paired together. Um, so not exactly a, a microgrid, but I think the same, same concept in a lot of ways. And you can make that structure work within a community solar market. Yeah, at least trying to solve a similar sort of problem anyway. That's right. It, could, you, could you try to dive into a little bit like the economics in terms of what a net energy metering agreement might look like between a community solar project and the utility itself? Yeah. Um, because again, I think a lot of people kind of yeah. incorrectly believe or understand utilities to make money by selling electricity. Really what they are is they're, they're there in place to maintain uh, the grid. Right, and so they have guaranteed their 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 regulated monopolies. They have a guaranteed return that they make on the investment that they make, the capital investments that they make to make sure that the grid is stable and that they can transmit yep. electricity from the generators to the end users. And community solar then becomes a generation station as part of that larger grid. So maybe you can kind of help us understand what are the economics that uh, a community solar project might have with the utility company sure. and how that shows up as savings at the end users uh, at the subscribers' yep. electricity bill. Yeah. So um, if you think mm -hmm. about what's happening with the community solar farm, so essentially that energy is going into the grid and that is being, um, right, commingled with the uh, energy mix, um, you know, that that's on the utilities distribution system, right? So the, the utility is essentially bringing in that energy into its um, overall resource mix. And so that actually reduces energy it needs to go out and procure from other other sources right or other generators um so that that's sort of what the benefit is to the utility um in terms of how does that energy get valued right how does the utility actually have to but not directly pay for but um credit customers for right from in terms of net metering um there it is through a tariff design right um, and, you know, utility rate making is, is very complicated and probably not the most fun thing to talk about, but there are, you know, essentially three different ways that I've seen it work, um, depending on the market. One is probably the most straightforward is you essentially design it exactly like net metering. So net metering typically means you take all the volumetric charges on a customer's bill, right? Add up those rates and that's what the solar would be worth. Um, and that's Just in in place in a number of markets. Um, Maryland is a, is a great example. Um, there's another uh, sort of approach where um, you create what is commonly called a value of solar or value of distributed energy resources tariff that tries to, um, you know, further um, hone in on what is the true value that's being generated, right? It's not just the value of the energy itself. It's also the other pieces we talked about, right? The capacity value that, um, you know, transmission decongestion, right. environmental value, and, and you sort of build up the value of the rate that way. Um, that's how New York works, for example. Um, and then I think the third way is you've, we've seen some markets where they basically say, um, we're not really going to give you credit for some of those other values. You're just going to get the, um, you know, the generation rate, um, right, right. Like the, um, 
standard offer service rate um, in the state for electricity generation. But we will um, create some sort of incentives, um, whether it's a rec or a performance-based incentive concept that tries to capture the environmental and other values that the energy is producing. And so that's sort of separate from the utility, um, but uh, you know, influences the overall economics of the project. So th those are kind of the three different ways that we've seen it modeled, but you ultimately get to the same place in each one, which is there's a certain value that the utility is applying to the energy produced, and that shows up in the form of a reduction in a customer's bill. I would imagine that for some and probably a large percentage of community solar subscribers, there's some sort of satisfaction that's derived from the fact that they're getting their power from renewable sources. At least they're offsetting the power. How often are consumers sort of disappointed to find out that the solar or the electricity that's generated at the solar plant isn't necessarily the electricity that's being used yes. um, at their homes? Yeah, it's a good question. I I haven't seen that come up too often. I think people are typically there's there may be some confusion early on about like if it's not on my my roofs right how can i be <laughs> what what's happening here right um but you know that that isn't what we've seen people really focus in on um i think right even when the panels are on your own roofs right i don't know that people are paying that much attention to you know how can i track you know if when i turn my light switch on are are the solar panels powering it right i think people have a, some understanding, right, that, that we're in this, this grid system. Yeah. I would say that on the residential side for the distributed, where you're actually installing the panels at the home, that's largely been true, although some percentage, maybe half of the power that your panels produce or is being consumed or used by the home. But as we're moving into these new phases where <laughs> batteries are becoming critical and peak shaving and, and really the interplay between your batteries and your solar panels, the consumption monitoring as well as the production monitoring are both becoming increasingly important. And, and we, we as an industry are having to get more sophisticated about how do we sort of manage the electricity, not just how much do we produce and not how much do you use, but we really have to start to think about where do we direct each of these electrons? How do we, how do we direct the flow of the electricity to both maximize the economic value, but also to maximize the value to the, the greater community into the grid, you know, to do things like peak shave and, and to try to help, pr yep. help, help provide additional grid stability. But you're absolutely right. I think the truth is, is that solar panels produce electricity when the sun shines and, and yep. uh, we, we use power outside of those hours, generally speaking. So uh, I think well, that's true. What I would say, Dave, is, you know, if we're doing this right, those two goals should really be the same, right? We should, we should Agreed. establish rates that in incentivize the, you know, the sort of positive grid behavior that, that we want. Right. So I think they, they haven't always historically been designed that way, but that really, uh, should be our goal. Yeah. All right. Well, well, Joel, as we're starting to wrap up here, what are the things that you're really excited about for community solar and the future of community solar and, and, uh, the role that community solar plays in the decarbonization of our utility system or of our electrical system? Yeah. Um, so, it's always exciting to be in a rapidly growing market, right? And, and this certainly is one where we're really still early um, in the market for community solar. Um, we as an industry have a goal uh, to get to um, 10 million households um, served with community solar by 2030. Um, and if you look at the growth rate, uh, the market has been um, expanding at, you know, we could, uh, we, we could absolutely right? We see a path to get there. Um, so that, that's really exciting. And I think, um, you know, the, the other really cool thing about community solar that's maybe a little different from, um, utility scale is the way it can, um, you know, benefit the community in other ways, right? These are assets located within the distribution system. There's a lot of sort of unique siting opportunities, right? Brownfield opportunities, um, where community development um, and, and local economic development can really be a, a key part of the picture. So um, I think you're going to see, you know, continued political will um, around these programs. And we're excited for more states to open and for more to come uh, from the federal level as well. Yeah. And what are the things that you think have to happen in order, in order for you to make sure that you hit that $10 million number from a policy perspective and and from the federal level and even at the state level? I, you talked a lot yeah. about some of these uh, 
um, important changes that are happening in terms of regulatory yep. changes, but what are the things that, that, that are absolutely necessary in order to be able to hit that 10 million uh, person yeah. or 10 million subscriber goal? Yeah. So I, I'd love to see us get to 20 states um, with community solar policies. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely achievable, right? We've got a number of states already with you know, active um, legislation under consideration. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're only in 2023 here, so a lot of time. Um, and then the other thing I would say that's really important as an industry is um, that we really execute against um, some of the objectives in the IRA where, you know, funding has been established. Um, you know, to use kind of a cliche, like we need to see steel in the ground, right? Um, not, you know, not tomorrow, like now, right? Like, like this year, next year. Um, uh, because that is going to be the way that I think we demonstrate that these types of policies are effective um, and that, you know, individuals, right, across the country in many different markets, even ones that don't have community solar today, will start seeing direct benefits from these programs um, in the form of cost savings on their utility bills. So I think to me, those are kind of the two things we need. We definitely need more, um, you know, policy expansion at the state level. Um, but at the federal level, I think we have a great, you know, starting point now um, with the IRA and it's on, you know, us as an industry to execute against that um, and make sure we're, uh, you know, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, let's execute against what we have in front of us and, um, you know, get, get some benefits flowing to individuals. Yeah. Not, not asking you to create any enemies here, but you said nine out of 10 customers are probably better suited for community solar than for residential solar installed in their own homes. Do you still think that ratio is the same? Do you think that a one out of 10 customers should probably install solar on their on their own roof? Or, or what do you think that ratio should really look like going forward? Yeah, you know, it, it's not even a matter of should, right? It's it's more, it's, it's more could, right? It's, um, do you have the roof that can generate enough energy for the investment to be worth it, um, right? Do you have, um, do you own your roof in the first place? Um, do you have, you know, the, the either financing or, or credit score to make it possible, right? A lot of these are sort of binary issues. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely um, think there's a lot of growth yet to come in rooftop solar, but we just simply don't have nearly the, the restrictions and qualifications required um, uh, for community solar that, that you have in rooftop. And so I think our, our addressable market is just bigger, right? It, it just is. Yeah, well, at 10 million customers, I, I think that there's just plenty of space for everyone to really be successful. And, Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is, is that um, uh, while while the industries probably or or the the models compete against each other at least a, a little bit, the truth of the matter is they're more complementary than they are competitive. I think. And 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 Joel, it's great to see Arcadia having the success it is on the community solar side. It's great to see community solar grow as quickly as it is. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to have someone that's actually an expert in this field come on and talk about the components of community solar and really help educate our base and our listeners and into understanding what it is. And I think we're thinking about these things for the first time for a lot of us. Um, so it's been absolutely fantastic having you come on. Thanks so much, Joel, for your expertise in community solar and, and, and genuinely appreciate you coming on to talk about it with us. Thanks for having me.